Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we'll hear Dr. Stephen Jensen, Professor of Philosophy at the University of St. Thomas and the Director of the Center for Thomistic Studies, giving a talk titled, Sophisticated Alienation. And without further ado, our podcast. Thank you. I've had several people ask me what the heck my talk is about. Uh, I decided not to have a subtitle explaining it, but it'll become (laughs) clear pretty quickly uh, what I'm talking about. Perhaps having a title that people are wondering what it's about makes them just show up so they can figure it out as opposed to saying, yeah, I know all about that already anyway. So, <laughs> All right, well, the first thing to note is this is about consequentialism. Uh, and I'm just going to briefly define consequentialism as the ethical view that seeks to produce the greatest amount of good for the greatest number. And in particular, uh, it's going to involve what I'll call agent-neutral good. Uh, That is a good that uh, is not personal or belonging to a particular individual or individuals. In the literature, usually what's referred to is uh, agent-neutral reasons as opposed to agent-relative reasons. Uh, But sometimes the word good is used, say, by Philip Pettit, for instance, who's a consequentialist. Uh, And I'm picking up on his usage of that. It won't be too important, but it'll be important uh, to distinguish from personal goods that someone might have. Now, one of the major objections that has been raised against consequentialism is an alienation objection, hence part of my title, alienation. So uh, the alienation objection Uh, can be alienation from oneself, but I'm going to focus on alienation from one's friends. Okay, so the objection states that if somebody's really a consequentialist, they'll end up becoming alienated from their friends because in some way when they're dealing with their friends, they're not concerned with the personal good of their friends. Rather, they're concerned with this agent-neutral good, with some greater good that is distinct from uh, the good of the friend. Now, an example uh, modified from Michael Stalker uh, brings the idea home. So uh, Giuseppe is laid up in the hospital uh, for a long time and is down and out. Uh, His good friend Kirsten comes to visit him in the hospital and spend a long time with him and cheers him up. At the end of uh, this, he says to Kirsten, Thank you so much for coming to visit me. It really made my day, and now things are a lot brighter. And Kirsten responds, think nothing of it. I sat down last night and calculated what would produce the greatest good for the greatest number, and it happened to be visiting you in the hospital. Uh, Well, Giuseppe is deflated, to say the least. He is alienated from his good friend Kirsten. Uh, So that gives you a picture of what the objection is alike. Now, uh, there's a very standard response that consequentialists make to this alienation objection, and it typically goes by the name of sophisticated consequentialism. 
Hence, now you have my complete title of sophisticated alienation present for you. So what does sophisticated consequentialism say? Well, it distinguishes between uh, objective consequentialism and subjective consequentialist reasoning. So objective consequentialism is just acting to produce the greatest good for the greatest number. Subjective consequentialist reasoning is when you think about it, calculate how you are going to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number. And uh, the idea that uh, these consequentialists have is that to be a good consequentialist, you don't always have to be using subjective consequentialist reasoning. Uh, and they give an example uh, that seems to make a lot of sense. They say, for instance, in emergency situations, you just have to act based upon what seems best in the situation. And if you sat down and calculated, you know, went through all your possibilities, did some kind of calculations about what would produce the greatest good for the greatest number, well, by the time you did all that, the emergency probably would have escalated to the point where you can't do anything about it. Uh, so if you're going to be a good consequentialist, what you do is you don't use subjective consequentialist reasoning when faced with these emergency situations. It's the same way, so this response, sophisticated consequentialism claim, it's the same way when you deal with your friends. If you're dealing with your friends and you're always thinking about producing the agent neutral good, the greatest, number for the, uh, greatest good for the greatest number, you're going to end up alienating your friends. So to be a good consequentialist, you have to suppress your consequentialist, subjective consequentialist reasoning, and uh, ultimately then you will not alienate your friends. Now there's a big, big literature uh, on this, and uh, over the years, the response to sophisticated alienation has tended to focus upon the idea that the sophisticated consequentialist, I'm sorry, to sophisticated consequentialists, the, the sophisticated consequentialists will not meet certain standards of friendship. They might abandon their friends at crucial times or uh, not do uh, good actions for them or something like that. I'm not going to go down that road. Rather, I'm going to consider uh, uh, an objection uh, based upon the idea of the sophisticated consequentialist perhaps not remaining a consequentialist, at least if he can avoid alienating his friends. And it's going to be based upon uh, looking at two different ways in which someone, including a sophisticated consequentialist, might suppress uh, his subjective consequentialist reasoning or any kind of uh, reasoning involved. The first way of suppressing uh, will end up still being objectionable and will still alienate friends. The second way in which the sophisticated consequentialist might suppress his consequential, subjective consequentialist reasoning uh, might be successful, but it seems that the uh, consequentialist will end up ceasing to be a consequentialist. Well, what are these two ways of suppressing reasoning? Uh, I'll use an analogy that comes from the literature of a tennis player who uh, is uh, always trying to win, wants to win so badly that he chokes. Uh, 
We'll call him Chuck. My brother Chuck used to play tennis. Well, I did too, but my brother Chuck always beat me, so maybe I was the one who choked. But at any rate, uh, I'll pick on Chuck. And uh, he, uh, he always chokes uh, at crucial shots, and ultimately he loses. He loses because he wants to win so badly. Uh, and so he determines that the best way to win is to suppress his reasoning about winning. Uh, and in that manner, he might win more. So he clearly has a parallel with the sophisticated consequentialist. Now, there are two ways that Chuck might end up suppressing his reasoning to win. One way is that he simply does not advert consciously at the moment of taking a shot to his goal of winning. I mean, this is a common practice in which we have a goal when we're doing an action, but we don't advert to the goal. Students taking a test, they're taking a test because they want to get a good grade, because they want to pass the class, because they want to get a degree. But when they're taking a test, they're thinking about math or whatever. They're not thinking about their goals. That's, that's pretty typical. So too, somebody can play tennis and just focus on this shot here, right here and now, and put out of mind at the moment the ultimate goal of winning the game. Uh, and so Chuck might do this, and this does not change his motive. His motive is still this domineering desire to win, right? Uh, it just changes where he, whether he thinks about that motive at the moment. The other thing he might do is not simply uh, uh, change his focus, so to speak, but to change his very desires and motives. So when playing tennis, he starts to try to appreciate other values besides winning. Just spending time with his friends, the exercise, uh, developing a skill, getting a good shot now and then, things like that. So that uh, ultimately winning no longer is such a dominant goal that he has. This changes not only his focus, but his goals or motives as well. Now similarly, the sophisticated consequentialist might uh, change uh, his, or suppress his subjective reasoning in either of these two ways. Uh, he or she, since we're dealing with Kirsten, I suppose, the uh, subjective consequentialist, she might simply change her focus. That is, while she's spending time with Giuseppe, she doesn't think about the agent neutral good. But that's still the driving factor, just like Chuck having the driving factor of winning but not thinking about winning as he's taking the shot. So Kirsten is not thinking about the agent neutral good during the times that she, she spends with uh, Giuseppe. Or the other possibility is that she might change her very desires and goals. That when she's with Giuseppe, she begins to appreciate other goods besides the agent neutral good, such as his own personal good. She seeks his good for his sake, not for the sake of the agent neutral good. Now the first approach, simply changing the focus and not uh, adverting to the goal, seems to be inadequate. Uh, give an example of a sophisticated money grubber. This is, uh, say there is a millionaire out there who offers a million dollars to people every time they can go to the hospital and cheer someone up. And Kirsten, wanting lots of millions of dollars, decides to take him up on that. Uh, 
But she goes to the hospital and tries to cheer people up, but she never can because she alienates them because she's always thinking about money. Uh, and so, in the end, uh, she decides to suppress her uh, reasoning about money. In the first way she might suppress it is simply what she really wants when she visits the person in the hospital is still the money. That's the only thing she really wants, but she doesn't think about it at the moment that she's visiting the person in the hospital. Now again, the motive stays the same here, and she might successfully hide the motive, although I suspect uh, she'll give cues away, uh, even though she's not thinking of it at the moment. But at any rate, if the motive is ever certainly discovered, the alienation will remain. In this case, the person will say, you're just using me for money, right? So uh, in the end, this manner might hide to some extent uh, and therefore delay or prevent some alienation, but will not eliminate alienation. Similarly, for the uh, sophisticated consequentialists. If she goes to the hospital and simply doesn't think about the agent neutral good, but that's still the real only reason that she's going to visit Giuseppe in the hospital, we still end up with the alienation. Uh, so it seems that the sophisticated consequentialist is going to have to take the second option of modifying the very goals and desires. And if you read the literature, they seem to move in that direction sometimes. So they, don't, they don't make this distinction, quite frankly, but uh, they, they lay enough hints here and there that, yes, they imply at least part of what's going on here is retraining their motives and desires, right? Will this approach remove alienation? Well, it seems to me it depends upon how much the original desire remains, how much the original desire for the agent neutral good remains. We do often act for multiple motives when we do something, uh, and uh, we find that quite acceptable that people act for multiple motives. So Kirsten could go to the hospital in part because she wants to produce the agent neutral good and in part because she wants uh, the good of Giuseppe for Giuseppe's sake. Uh, but the question is, how much does that first desire for the agent neutral good remain? And I'm going to suggest if it's too great, then the alienation is going to remain. Now, in a very extreme case, this uh, initial desire that she started with entirely disappears. That is, she no longer at all desires the agent neutral good. Uh, then it seems to me that she isn't, in fact, a consequentialist. That's an issue that will come up later, but that'll be my argument as we go along here. Now, Chuck, if he would completely eliminate his desire to win at tennis, can remain a tennis player because a tennis player is defined in terms of external actions uh, that people perform, but we typically define consequentialism and uh, someone to be a consequentialist in terms of beliefs and goals that they have. So if you eliminate the belief that you should produce the greatest good for the greatest number and you eliminate the goal of, of the greatest good of the greatest number, then it seems like uh, the person has stopped being a consequentialist. So it seems perhaps that the sophisticated consequentialist wants to set some kind of balance here where she doesn't entirely give up her agent neutral good, which would perhaps stop her from being a consequentialist. Uh, but at the same time, she mixes in these other goals, such as the, good, the personal good of Giuseppe. 
Uh, and indeed, uh, this again seems to be what most of the literature implies uh, without necessarily explicitly stating it, because it's typically said that the sophisticated consequentialist is ready to revert to consequentialist reasoning when necessary. So they haven't entirely abandoned the subjective consequentialist reasoning. They're ready to revert to it when necessary. But the question that they uh, don't ever answer and uh, at times only uh, mildly advert to is how on earth do, uh, does a sophisticated consequentialist revert to the consequentialist reasoning when necessary? The best account you can get of this is from Philip Pettit, who talks about virtual deliberations. Uh, and, uh, or that's, he talks about virtual uh, goals or reasoning, and I, I'm plugging in the term deliberation here. So uh, he says, by a kind of instinct, we can revert to a certain mode of reasoning when circumstances trigger uh, us to uh, think along that lines. Simple example, Kenny always has a standard breakfast. Uh, let's say uh, green eggs and ham or something like that. So he always has a standard breakfast each morning. Uh, but when circumstances trigger uh, it, he starts thinking about it, ways to modify his breakfast. Perhaps he has surgery one, uh, one day and so he modifies his breakfast to the point of having no breakfast, right? So the circumstance of having surgery has now triggered his reasoning to say, well, I have to modify my breakfast. Other circumstances don't lead him to think that way at all. So suppose he starts a new novel today. He doesn't think, oh, I better rethink my breakfast because I'm starting a new novel, right? So, so by a kind of instinct, certain circumstances trigger us to think about the matter and then reintroduce some uh, patterns of reasoning that have remained otherwise uh, virtual. The idea is that our lives are highly patterned and so we economize on deliberation by making them virtual, right? Uh, and in fact, they're so highly patterned, our lives for the most part are so highly patterned, that even breaks in the patterns are themselves predictable so that uh, certain circumstances will trigger us to reason about when to make uh, uh, a break in our usual way of going about things. Uh, now, we operate in our lives with multiple goals. Uh, Kenny, say, for instance, has chosen this breakfast because it helps him to focus on his philosophy or whatever throughout the day or in the morning when he does most of his work or something like that. So that's one goal is having his focus. But on the other hand, he also has the goal of health, which the surgery is obviously pretty important involved with the goal of health. Uh, but certain circumstances are going to trigger for us when we're acting normally sort of on autopilot for various goals. Certain circumstances are going to trigger for us uh, when these various goals might kind of come in conflict with one another and so we have to modify our behavior. So on the day that he has surgery, that circumstance alerts Kenny, oh, I've got the goal of health, I've got the goal of focus, now I have to think about, okay, what's most, most important here? And he gives up the goal of focus for this day for the sake of the goal of health, right? So that's the way these virtual deliberations work. And 
quite frankly, I filled in a lot of details that uh, Philip Pettit does not. So again, uh, they really don't talk much about how uh, the sophisticated consequentialist is supposed to revert to this uh, subjective consequentialist reasoning when necessary. So the idea is the sophisticated consequentialist acts with many goals throughout the day, such as, of course, the agent-neutral good, but also the good of her friends, maybe the good of her mother, and so on, a variety of goods that would be involved. And a lot of times, in various circumstances, she works on autopilot with virtual deliberations, right? But certain circumstances will trigger a change where she will say, oh, but wait a minute, I better think about this and then uh, ultimately uh, suppressed deliberations will come to the fore. So maybe she had planned to visit Giuseppe in the hospital today, uh, but uh, she finds out her mother has just had a stroke. Well, okay, so she now says, well, I better think about this. Uh, what's most important isn't at the moment seeking uh, the personal good of Giuseppe, but the good of my mother. So she changes her behavior. Right? Similarly, something might trigger for her the idea that, oh, I better act for the agent neutral good now. So uh, maybe somebody, uh, you know, uh, says, uh, if anyone enters the hospital today, uh, he is going to blow up the White House. And she calculates that maybe she shouldn't enter the hospital. Of course, probably most consequentialists today would say blowing up the White House might be a good thing. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Suppose it's a bad thing. Then she, she introduces this idea that she's going to uh, change her behavior, call to, to her mind uh, subjectively the agent-neutral good, which she has been suppressing, right? Now, if there's no circumstance that triggers uh, the subjective consequentialist reasoning, then she goes ahead and visits Giuseppe in the hospital, acting under her virtual, virtual deliberations for the good of her friend, not for the agent neutral good, or we've got uh, simply the first mode of suppressing uh, the, uh, the subjective uh, reasoning, uh, which leaves the goal, right? All right, so this is the best picture I can paint of the sophisticated uh, consequentialists, and I think it's a fairly good uh, picture of, of how he might or she might operate. Now, my question is, does the sophisticated consequentialist remain a consequentialist? Uh, the sophisticated consequentialist asks for, acts for many goods throughout the day, including, among them, the agent-neutral good. And as I asked before, well, how strong is this disposition for the agent-neutral good? Is it very slight, insignificant compared to her other goals? Then one has to wonder, whether she, in, in fact, is a consequentialist. One might go so far, as I suggested earlier, to say that she doesn't act at all for the agent-neutral good. Uh, and most people who, who advocate sophisticated consequentialism seem to want to leave this possibility open. Indeed, they tout it as a strength of consequentialism that it can completely suppress itself for the sake of the greatest good. Uh, it is the most adaptable ethical theory because it can suppress its very self entirely. <laughs> Usually when they give examples of this, they're rather bizarre. Uh, one of them involves a divine donkey and a divine elephant. 
I don't know if there's a political analogy involved here, but I suspect there is. And the divine donkey is good, and the divine elephant is bad. <laughs> so we should usually follow the divine donkey. But the divine elephant has concocted a magic spell to fool everybody into thinking that he's the donkey and that the donkey is the elephant. So under such a situation, it would be good to completely suppress your reasoning to follow the donkey and start following the elephant. So the reasoning goes, uh, and that would be a very adaptable thing. Another, uh, another sophisticated consequentialist gives the, uh, an analogy with a divine deontologist. Why these atheists are bringing in the divine here all the time is not exactly clear, but they are pretty uh, extreme examples, you can see, to bring up this case of how great of use of this, uh, consequentialism is that it can completely suppress itself for the sake of its overall good. They never seem to be concerned at all that the person who has so completely suppressed consequentialism is not, in fact, a consequentialist anymore. All that matters is they're producing the greatest good, whether or not they themselves are a consequentialist, right, or he or she is. Now, these examples, these rather extreme examples, uh, reveal another feature of sophisticated consequentialism, uh, that uh, consequentialists typically, not universally, but typically consider the need for friendship to be res a result of some kind of defect. Uh, Perhaps human beings have a tendency to care more for those who are close to them, which in an idealistic, consequentialist world, we wouldn't. Okay? But we do, so we have to adapt to it, and so we have to allow for friendship. Or perhaps people would get burned out if they were always acting for the uh, overall good. Uh, and so in order to avoid burnout, we have to allow uh, the suppression, suppression of this uh, working for the overall good. Well, the most important defect that uh, seems to be at issue when it comes to alienation and friendship is the lack of flexibility of our dispositions. Uh, the, uh, the sophisticated consequentialist uh, is necessary because we have inflexible dispositions with regard to our friends, so that we will often pursue the good of our friends even when it might harm the overall good. If we would abandon these dispositions, we would abandon friendship, which would be bad for the overall good because friendship helps the overall good. So we don't want to abandon these dispositions to our friends, but if we keep them, then we end up being inflexible and so we don't always act for the overall good. And so we have to become a sophisticated consequentialist. The sophisticated consequentialist really is unable to adjust her behavior all that readily to the situation. Although, remember, she's supposed to be able to revert to, uh, to uh, subjective consequentialist reasoning when necessary. But she's uh, not all that good at it. She's pretty inflexible. A very striking example from one sophisticated consequentialist, Alistair Nor Norcross, involves a Nazi death camp. Uh, and an individual, uh, a consequentialist, is given the opportunity to take over a, if you call it an opportunity, to take over a uh, Nazi death camp. Now, why is this an opportunity? Because 
If he takes it over, he will indeed kill lots of innocent people, but he will kill fewer than if somebody else were in charge of the death camp. So if he sits down and does his subjective consequentialist reasoning, he concludes that he should take over this death camp and kill all these people because fewer people will be killed in the end. But this, so, uh, this uh, consequentialist has an inflexible disposition. He's got a strong, irrational, as far as Norcross is concerned, as far as consequentialism is concerned, a strong, irrational disposition uh, or aversion to uh, killing innocent people. Uh, so much so that in the end, he might turn down the job, so to speak, the job which he should take if he's, if he's really always going to follow consequentialist reasoning. And Norcross sort of leaves it at this. Well, you know, that's a defect that we have to live with. You know, ideally, he would have taken the job. But it's a defect we have to live with because people's dispositions are not all that flexible. So you can see uh, how far things go. Norcross is the one who had the divine donkey and the divine elephant, by the way. But at any rate. Um, <clears throat> all right. So uh, it seems to me, however, that many of our dispositions are flexible. Certainly, we have inflexible dispositions, but many of our dispositions are actually fairly flexible. Uh, and uh, often, most often, when we understand the rationale behind our disposition, then we're flexible to adjust them. I mean, Kenny, say, understands the rationale behind his breakfast it's so that he has focus in the morning. So he can readily adjust uh, with regard to this disposition when the circumstance arises because he understands it. If it was just sort of a completely irrational attachment to green eggs and ham, then he would have greater difficulty. He'd be less flexible in making adjustments. So it seems the irrational dispositions are the less flexible and the rational ones are the more flexible. So what we get in sophisticated consequentialism is uh, the need to encourage what for them are dispositions not founded upon reason, reason being consequentialist reasoning, right? Uh, in order to seek the good of the friend. Uh, ultimately, it seems, in order to be flexible, that is, in order to uh, be able to sometimes revert to, uh, cons or, I'm sorry, in order to be so flexible as to completely suppress itself, sophisticated consequentialism has to encourage the less flexible dispositions, right? Those that are not reasonable, as far as consequentialism would define reasonable, right? Now, one might also note that uh, sophisticated consequentialists, I think, fairly often exaggerate the inflexibility of our dispositions with regard to friendship, but I won't uh, get into that for reasons of time. All right, well, uh, let's move on from this idea of completely suppressing and move to uh, look at what might be the problem with the sophisticated consequentialists. Now, as I said earlier, one of the major lines of objection is that the sophisticated consequentialist is going to abandon the friend uh, in, when they shouldn't be abandoning the friend, uh, or at least some friendly activity that they should be engaging in. Uh, but I I'm focusing upon something else. I I'm going to focus upon when the sophisticated consequentialist acts in a friendly way or behavior, I should say, but in some manner is still acting 
unfriendly. So it's friendly action, like visiting the person in the hospital, but it's unfriendly because they're doing it just for the greater good, right? That's uh, the complaint I wish to focus upon, which I think was the original complaint before sophisticated consequentialism uh, arose uh, to bring down other uh, avenues of argument. Now again, I want to return to the uh, analogy with the sophisticated money grubber. Uh, she has to retrain her desires if she's going to avoid alienation. If she simply, as I suggested before, if she simply suppresses thinking about money in the presence of Giuseppe or whoever she's visiting in the hospital, ultimately you still have the cause for alienation uh, even if uh, the person might not happen to pick it up at the moment. That if she really wants to avoid alienation, she has to retrain her desires uh, and seek the good of the friend for his own sake, which gives us these multiple motives as I presented before when I developed the idea of the sophisticated consequentialist. So how strong is the desire for money, for the sophisticated money grabber, how strong is this desire for money uh, remaining? If it's so insignificant, uh, then it's hard to see uh, why we want to call her a money grubber. It's so, ins so insignificant to say it almost never influences her behavior, her desire for money. Well, why are we calling her a money grubber at this point, right? Um, indeed, she might come to see her past in which she sought money as, uh, you know, an unfortunate aspect of her life. Uh, and uh, she now has seen the light, so to speak, right? So uh, if it's so insignificant, it seems like uh, she's not going to be a money grummer anymore. So it seems she has to retain at least a somewhat significant desire for money in order for us still to call her a money grubber. And so she's got these multiple motives when she visits Giuseppe, for instance. She wants money, yes, uh, but she also wants the good of Giuseppe for his own sake. Uh, and again, this is typical even in our friendships. When we act with others, we, we act for their sake and uh, for the sake uh, of other things as well. If, in fact, it's simply that the desire for money isn't thought of at the moment, then ultimately, again, we have these virtual deliberations, which isn't good enough. She has to retrain her desire so that she really does want, as one of her goals, uh, the good of Giuseppe for his own sake. Now, what might be Giuseppe's complaint if indeed she's visiting him in the hospital for these multiple motives? He might say, well, she loves something else more than she loves him, namely money, right? Uh, so maybe it's that she loves money more than she loves him. I don't think that is entirely what, I mean, it's, it's part of what we need, but I think that's entirely what we need to get at her, uh, his objection against her. Because again, suppose that uh, her mother has a stroke and uh, she decides that uh, she has to go take care of her mother. Giuseppe wouldn't, or at least shouldn't, complain, oh, you love your mother more than you love me, right? <laughs> uh, so it's not just that she loves something more than she loves Giuseppe. That's not all that's needed to account for his sense of alienation. Uh, it's not just that she has multiple motives uh, in friendship uh, that uh, say uh, John uh, 
goes to Francisco to spend some time with him and get some help on a philosophical question right, in the process. Francisco is to him someone he likes spending time with and he seeks Francisco's good, but Francisco is also useful to solve this <laughs> philosophical problem. I don't think Francisco has a cause for objection there, right? Uh, it's fine to do something both for Francisco's case and for the sake of something that's useful. So uh, Giuseppe can't simply say, oh, but you're visiting me both because you like me as a friend and because you want money. I don't think that quite captures uh, the problem. Rather, what I want to suggest, it's, it's the combination of these two. It's that she has both motives in going to visit him in the hospital and that the motive of money is the greater motive, right? That these two combined is what cause, causes the objection. Uh, that in the end, he sees himself more as being used uh, yes, she may want uh, to visit him in part for his own sake, but ultimately uh, more so because he's useful for getting money. Well, obviously, this is going to apply then to the sophisticated consequentialist. She has multiple motives. She seeks the good of her friend, but she also visits him in the hospital instrumentally for the agent-neutral good. And she wants the agent-neutral good more than she wants his good, so he is loved more as instrumental for this uh, separate good than for his own sake. Now this is different from the example of the mother because that does not combine the two. She loves her mother more, but she's not visiting Giuseppe as a useful tool for producing something for her mother, right? So uh, in the end, uh, I don't think the, the analogy holds completely. Um, now, it doesn't help that the motive or deliberation remains virtual. That is, the goal uh, of the agent-neutral good when she visits him in the hospital is suppressed in the first sense of she doesn't focus upon it. As I've suggested before, for various reasons, that doesn't work. If, then, she's going to eliminate the alienation, she has to reduce her desire for the greater, uh, the agent-neutral good, right? Uh, but, it seems, then she risks ceasing to be a consequentialist. If that is no longer her dominant desire, then, ultimately, uh, she will be ceasing to be a consequentialist. So what I'm suggesting then is that the advocates, the sophisticated consequentialists, have remained vague about the degree to which the desire for the agent-neutral good must be suppressed and the degree to which it remains. They have made vague assertions about consequentialist reasoning reasserting itself when necessary. And they thereby have left the illusion that they can meet the alienation objection. But what I want to suggest is that either they leave the motive as the strongest motive and therefore leave the alienation, or they dim diminish the motive for the agent-neutral good so significantly that they cease entirely to be a consequentialist. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. 
Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thomisticstudies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot edu slash cts. Thank you.